My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the uh, campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and uh, thanks for coming out this morning. Uh, we never cancel church on Sundays, no matter how much snow there is. I think John and I both live close enough to walk, so even if we can't get out, we will walk here, and if we just have church, and it's just the two of us, we will do it. So church is always open. Thanks for coming. Um, so good to see each one of you. Happy New Year. And uh, if you are a kid and you are with us um, and you picked up one of these Kid Connect sheets, we're going to be doing these all throughout the year now. If you are an elementary school student, you're with us in the service. This goes along with the message. Fill this out. And if you do fill it out, um, you can bring it downstairs to the children's ministry check-in desk. Mr. Dave will have something for you uh, down there. So um, with that, let's, uh, as we begin our time, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, Thank you that you uh, have sent your son, Jesus, as the true and better everything, the true and better prophet, priest, and king. And I pray that as we open this, this new book, this, this book of Hebrews, and we spend uh, the next 24 weeks looking at this book in detail, um, that we would meet Jesus in fresh new ways each week and see how he truly is. Uh, the true and better um, everything. So we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now to bring your word to life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, to whom it all points. Amen. Well, I want to tell you a story this morning about Ben and Sarah. And when Ben and Sarah first heard about Jesus, they were pretty skeptical. Um, I mean, and really, who can blame them, right? Uh, how could Jesus be the Son of God? How could anybody be the Son of God? And some of us are, are right there this morning. Maybe you are here this morning thinking, yeah, that seems pretty impossible, pretty far-fetched. And Ben and Sarah, when they first heard this, they were pretty skeptical. But they had this friend who believed, and, and he was never pushy about it, but he patiently told them the story of Jesus. And, and Ben and Sarah could see that there was something different in their friend's life. They could just see there's something different about him, and that made them curious. And eventually, this friend of theirs kind of worked up enough courage to invite them to church some Sunday. And it actually wasn't until Ben and Sarah started spending time in this strange community of people who loved Jesus and, and who also loved one another that it began to sink in. They weren't just hearing about some superstition or myth, rumors of a resurrection. They, they actually saw Jesus and his people. And over time, Ben and Sarah, they believed. In their early 20s, just about to get married, they committed their lives to following Jesus. And, and then they lived uh, happily ever after. Okay, well, well not quite. Uh, several years passed. They never expected that life would be all rosy after they became Christians. They knew better. They had seen firsthand how some Christians' life actually got harder. And, and yet, they didn't really think maybe that would happen to them. But they began to grow restless. And I'm not sure if they were disillusioned by Jesus or, or just bored or, or just too busy with other stuff. Life gets complex. Work and bills and kids started coming. And that was actually the, kind of the hardest part for them. They didn't even really know why, but they knew. That, that, that passion that they had once experienced, it just wasn't there anymore. I mean, if, at once before, their, their words and their Bibles, they just seemed to leap off of the page. God seemed to be speaking to them in every paragraph. But not anymore. Those pages that had once seemed so alive now just seemed dead and old and dry. 
And they'd given up a lot to follow Jesus. And now it was only getting harder. Um, Sarah had recently been mocked and rejected by one of her friends, one of her closest friends. And Ben had been passed over a couple times by promotions because he was a Christian. He was convinced that was the reason why. And of course, they'd heard stories of worse in other places, of Christians being abused, of property being taken away, even people being killed. And they knew maybe it was only a matter of time. And others in their small congregation began to leave. Friends, good friends of theirs, began to quit. And and not just to quit the church, they actually left Jesus, and, and quite a few of them, in fact. And for the first time, Ben and Sarah, actually, they began to talk about giving up too. And, and I've got to tell you, I, I mean, I can relate to this at times, right? I think most of us probably can. Kids and, and students, uh, maybe you're not there yet, but, but you will be at some point. There will come a time when you will begin to ask questions like, why do I believe all of this? Is it, is it really worth it? And, and those questions are normal. They're a normal part of life. And, and there's nothing wrong with you. Doubt is a, is a normal part of faith. But if you don't have the handles to answer those questions, boredom can begin to set on. Temptation, disillusionment in the face of suffering. And it's really not that hard in those moments to start to drift And I know some of you are asking those same questions. You're in the same place as Ben and Sarah, wondering, is this really worth it? You believe, but it started to get old. It started to get dry. Or maybe you haven't believed yet. You're still considering this whole Jesus thing, and and you're not quite ready to take the next step. Or, Or maybe you're here, and you've kind of had some contact with the church, but you're just not sure what the next step is. Either way, the question you need answered, the question that Ben and Sarah need answered, the question that I need answered is, is this really worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? I mean, I'm giving my life to this. I'm raising my daughter to believe this. And and I have a whole slew of things that I don't do that I would like to do because of this. The way I spend my time and my energy, all because of this. My life is spent following someone I can't see, obeying a book that is ancient, devoted to an institution, the the church that's messy. So I think I want to know, you want to know, is Jesus really worth it? And Ben and Sarah, they they were this close. Their faith was just hanging on by a thread. And a few other details about Ben and Sarah. They'd grown up Jewish, so if they took a step back from Jesus, that's probably where they'd end up. And they also lived a long time ago, back in the 1960s. Actually, not the 1960s. Actually, the 0060s. AD 60s. And they weren't alive at the same time of Jesus, but they were close. They, were, they weren't eyewitnesses of all he'd done, but they knew eyewitnesses. People who had seen Jesus raised from the dead. You see, Christianity didn't just start off with a bunch of people talking about what they believed about Jesus. Christianity started with a group of people who had actually seen Jesus raised from the dead. They were witnesses to something that happened. In the early church, they all believed that Jesus would be coming back, like like any minute. He said he was going to come soon, but it had been three decades now. And see, we're used to him not coming back any minute. We've had 2,000 years of church history, but they weren't. And so that only added to their discouragement. So it's Sunday morning. Ben and Sarah had missed church last week, so they decided reluctantly 
even though it was snowing. They were going to go out maybe one last time. Maybe this would be the last time they went. They sit down in their small congregation. These people were like family to them. Their pastor gets up to preach. We don't even know who he was, but he begins his sermon like this. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom through him also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That actually is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it and turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And that sentence, all that I read is actually just one sentence in Greek. It's in the original language of the New Testament. It's a long, eloquent sentence. In fact, it's widely considered one of the most eloquent and thoughtful sermons ever preached, this book of Hebrews. And so important that God decided it belonged in his book written down for us. And we know that the book of Hebrews is, uh, is part of the New Testament. And we know that we sometimes refer to it as a letter, the letter of the Hebrews. But most likely it actually appeared in the first century as a sermon. Preached to a small congregation of mostly Jewish Christians in or near the city of Rome. And in our Bibles it's broken down into 13 chapters. But really it's just one sermon, one message and we're going to take the next 24 weeks together and look at this, and look at this sermon together. We're going to be turning the pages of our Bibles much more slowly. Like John and, and Oliver said, if you were with us last year, we went through the Bible cover to cover. So we were turning those pages really quickly. We're going to slow way down and just sit and soak here in the book of Hebrews, this letter that actually was originally a sermon. We don't know who wrote it. Um, there have been lots of guesses, but none of them are really worth mentioning. We have no idea who actually wrote it. Um, we don't even really know that much about the first hearers, but we do know why the book was written. And it's because some of them were beginning to drift away. And it was only going to get harder. Some were growing disillusioned, disappointed, overwhelmed by temptation, or some were just getting plain bored. And so the preacher of this sermon reminds them of just one thing. One thing that is as true for us as it was for them. And it's this. You can't do better than Jesus. That is the message of Hebrews. You can't do better than Jesus. The answer to my question, to your question, to Ben and Sarah's question is yes, Jesus is worth it. You can't do better than Jesus. And the author is going to spend 13 chapters telling us why and how you can't do better than Jesus. In fact, the words for more or greater or better um, referring to Jesus occur over 25 times in the book of Hebrews. He's the better priest, the better hope, the better covenant, the better promise, the better sacrifice, the better life. He's better than the angels we're going to see next week. He's better than Moses. He's better than anything you can fill in the blank. And this is the case the author case the author is going to be going to make um, throughout the whole book. But in these first four verses, we see four reasons in these first four verses why you can't do better than Jesus. First, Jesus is the story. Second, Jesus is the author of the story. Third, he's the director of the story. And finally, he's the hero of the story. You can't do better than Jesus because he's the story. He's the author of it. He's the director of it. And finally, he's the hero of the story. 
You see, the first reason that the author gives for why you can't do better than Jesus is that Jesus is the story. You see, Jesus, as we saw in the video, he isn't just one of the many characters in the Bible or, or just even one of the most important characters of the Bible. No, everything in the Bible is about him. He is the story. He isn't a messenger from God. He is God's message. And that's what the author is getting at when he writes long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, God has been speaking for a long time. And he's spoken to us in in lots of different ways. Um, The psalmist tells us in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And also later on in Psalm 19, the author talks about how God reveals himself in the law. And this is what the author of of Hebrews is telling us when he says that he spoke to us through the prophets. And, And in the Jewish mindset, the prophets included not just what we call the prophets, but also the historical books as well. The law and the prophets are God speaking to us. However, this idea of, of many times in many places is that what has come before long ago was partial and incomplete. That this long ago speech of, of many times, many places, it was, it was partial and incomplete. It's as if someone was mailing you the pieces of a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, one by one in the mail. You kept getting these little partial pieces and, and you're trying to fit them together. But sometimes because you don't have the box to see how the pieces fit together, even the additional pieces make the picture less clear rather than more clear. That's kind of the picture of what the Old Testament was. It's many times, many places, we're getting this revelation, but it's, it's partial, it's incomplete. We don't have the whole picture yet. But now, the author says, but now God has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus, is the, as, as the Son of God, is the very climax of God revealing himself, the highest point. Jesus is the story that God is telling. Jesus is the whole. What came before was the part. Jesus is complete. What came before was partial. This is what theologians call progressive revelation, that that God beginning in the very beginning of time, even with the creation, begins to reveal himself to the world that he has made. And slowly over time, progressively, he reveals more and more of himself until at last we get Jesus, who is the full and complete revelation the full and complete revealing of who God is and what he is like. And this isn't to say that the Old Testament was bad. Not at all. In fact, the author of the Hebrews loves the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament constantly. And actually, one of the things I love about the book of Hebrews is Hebrews is kind of like the cliff notes of the Bible. Because the author of Hebrews is taking the whole story of the Old Testament and showing how all the pieces come together. He's tying it all together for us. It's a great summary of beautifully reads the Old and New Testament together. That's part of the reason why we chose to do Book of Hebrews after we spent this whole year going through the Bible because it pulls all the pieces together. But the point is this. Apart from Jesus, God's final and complete word to us, all of his previous words can never make the full and truest sense. Jesus is the story that God has been telling from the beginning. Period. Jesus is the story. But what we discover as we look further at verse 2 is that not only is Jesus the story that God is telling, Jesus is also the author of that very story. Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, God appointed Jesus the heir of all things, of everything. In short, this means that everything belongs 
to Jesus. It all belongs to him. He's the heir of it all. It's inherited by him. It belongs to him. Everything. Your time, your family, your work, your money, your home, your car, your 401k, your education, your talents, your relationships, they all belong to him. Why? Because he's the author of the story. Jesus created everything. He created the entire universe. The, the word translated world really is better uh, universe. Um, it refers to the whole created universe of time and space. The Father is the source of creation, but the Son, who is the agent of creation. And if you've been following along in the open here reading plan this first week, and Oliver mentioned these bookmarks, you can grab one of these. One of the passages, I think it was for Saturday, just yesterday, you read uh, Colossians chapter 1. And in that letter, Paul, writing to the Christians living in the city of Colossae, he writes this. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this this means that Jesus knows the whole story. He knows the story of every gnat and every whale, the story of every tiny clover and every great sequoia. He knows the story of every atom and every supernova. He knows your story and he knows mine. And nothing happens except by him and through his will. So the question is, do you trust him? Or are you still looking for better? You can't do better than Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is Jesus the author of the story... He's also the director of the story. He's the one who makes sure everything that is written will be implemented according to plan. One of the big movies over this holiday season was the movie Saving Mr. Banks. And the film is all about whether or not the author, this woman who wrote Mary Poppins, is willing to trust Walt Disney with her novel and allow him to make it into a movie. Can the author trust the director to faithfully represent the story? But when it comes to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's no such worry of concern for the author's story will be faithfully implemented by the director because they are one. Look at the the first part of verse 3. The author, the preacher, says this, He, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, as the Nicene Creed puts it, is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Commentator George Guthrie, who's really helpful on Hebrews, explains what it means for Jesus to be the radiance of God's glory this way. He says, one cannot separate the experience of looking at the brightness of a light from seeing the light itself because the two are so closely associated. By analogy, to see Jesus, to see the sun, is to view God's glory. And similarly, when the author says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, he's making the point that Jesus provides a perfect picture of God. The idea of imprint here is is in the uh, ancient uh, first century, they would use uh, a wax seal to seal something, right? So you have the seal that you would then press into wax to seal a letter. And what you pressed into the wax is an exact representation, exact picture of what was on the seal. Uh, It's a lot like letterpress printing, right? One of my favorite things to do uh, on first Fridays is to go to Hammer Press down in the Crossroads Art District. I love that place. And they do uh, letterpress printing there. And what they do is they take a plate and then they press it into paper. 
um, like this card here. And so you get that kind of texture. So the, the plate, exact representation of the plate ends up on the card. You see, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus, as the director of the story, holds the universe together. He literally holds all things together with those words. Wait, did, did you get that? He holds the universe together. The universe together. Can we even begin to wrap our minds around that? No, uh, we can't, but we're going to try. Um, we are going to try. You see, I, I just I wanted to try. How can we begin to even come close? And, and I thought of this. Our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, is about 100,000 light years in diameter. And it contains about 100 to 400 billion stars. So if you found a way to travel at 186,000 miles per second, um, it would take you 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. Unbelievable, right? And, And if you counted one star per second while you were on your journey, it would take you about 100 years to count all the stars in it. But now look at this. This is a a picture, a a photograph of a cluster of galaxies known as Abel 2029. It's a super cluster of galaxies that's about a billion light years away from Earth. And those actually, those aren't stars. Those are galaxies in that picture. And and if you look at the center, that bright one that the arrow is pointing to, that's a, a, a super galaxy. It's one of the largest ones ever known. It's called IC 1101. And it's five to six million light years across. So it's 50 plus bigger times than our our galaxy, the Milky Way. And it's estimated that that galaxy, that IC 1101, contains over a trillion stars. Which at the rate of one second counting would take you about 3.1 million years to count them all. Jesus holds every molecule of it together with the word of his power. I mean, I can't even get my iPhone to dial the right phone number with my voice. <laughs> Jesus holds the world, the universe, together with his power. Jesus directs the whole story. He is God. He is in control of all things. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. And if this is true, then Jesus can't just be a good teacher. He can't just be a good example. You see, either what Hebrews says about Jesus is true and we owe him everything or it is a lie and we shouldn't care anything about Jesus. But we, you can't just be neutral on Jesus. We, you, you can't just admire him or, or like him as though he's just another great historical figure. I, I love how Tim Keller says this. He says, the person who holds the universe together with his very words, with his pinky finger, isn't someone you invite into your life as your personal assistant. But the good news is that even though Jesus will never be your personal assistant, he will be your rescuer. He will be your savior. He will be your sustainer, your protector, that you can rest in him knowing that he will protect and sustain you. According to the latest issue of The Atlantic, uh, anxiety is the number one mental illness in the United States. I, I read this article last Sunday. It's a great read. Um, it's a long-form article, but it's, it's hilarious to laugh out loud. It's a really thoughtful piece. Um, and nearly everyone in here worries, right? 
And we worry worry a lot. I worry about Lucy, my daughter. I worry about my wife, Rachel. I worry about money all the time. I worry about college and retirement. I worry about being a good enough pastor, about being a good enough father, husband, good enough Christian. But at the end of the day, where else would I go? What else should I do? You know, many of us will always struggle with worry and anxiety. But here's the thing. You can't do better than Jesus. He's the director of the story. He's God himself. He is the sustainer of everything. So the question is, do you trust him? Or are you still looking for something better? And in the face of of such a God, uh, two things run through my mind at this point. First, Jesus really is better. And second, how could someone like him ever put up with someone like me? And the preacher tells us it's because Jesus is also the hero of the story. Look at how verse 3 ends. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. You see, through Jesus' death on the cross, he has made a way for his story, for this story of the Bible to become our story. And he sat down at God's right hand. The idea of him sitting down is that his work of purification is finished. It's done. He's sat down. It's over. So if you follow Jesus, you are pure, you are righteous, you are holy, you are accepted, you are loved, even when you don't feel like it. And this is the reason, this is a reason, a chief reason that the author, that this preacher will come back to over and over and over again in this book, this idea of the purification for sins. We're going to see this over and over and over again. You see, only with Jesus is there salvation, is there rescue. Only with him is there forgiveness for our rebellion, our selfishness, our greed. Only with him is there hope. So don't give up. Hold on. He really is better. You see, our our biggest problem isn't self-improvement. And and we are kind of obsessed with self-improvement, especially this time of year, right? New Year's resolutions. I mean, we're all making them. I'm making them um, because I love letting myself down, so I always make some at the beginning of the year. Um, It's not money. It's not work. It's not family. As important as all these things are, our biggest problem is that we run from God. That's our biggest problem. We run away from him. But the good news of the gospel is this, that he comes running after us. And he has made a way for his story to become our story. Elizabeth Elliot uh, is a missionary and an author. Uh, She wrote these words. Those hands that kept a million worlds from spinning into oblivion were nailed motionless to a cross for us. Then she asked, can you trust him? All this stuff about Jesus, he really is beyond comprehension. But this one, that he is the hero of the story, is the one that makes all that other stuff really good news. So Ben and Sarah, the couple we started talking off at the beginning, and and all of us here, we have to hear this, that that we can't do better than Jesus. And and some of us here, we know that. We know that that's true. Uh, But we're not good at living it yet. We, We believe it, but we're not fully living into it in our lives. There are all kinds of things in in your life that you actually treat as better than Jesus. Things I ask to give me what only God can give me. For others, you're just not convinced yet. You're so, so there's some guy here telling me that Jesus is is really better than than everything else. I'm I'm not there yet. Big deal. 
And you just need some more time. Regardless, though, for all of us, no matter where you're at, I think we, the response we need to have is the same. Three things, and, and I'll be quick with these, because we have the next six months, right, to, to flesh all this out. All of us need to do three things. Know the competition, make the comparison, and then choose the better. So know the competition. For Ben and Sarah, it was running back to their old ways, back to Judaism. Back in the first century, Judaism was an accepted religion within the Roman world. It would have been a lot easier for them just to go back to being Jews, that all of that persecution and ostracism, it would have stopped. Judaism was a recognized religion. This Jesus thing, though, it wasn't. But what about for me? What's competing with Jesus in my life? Approval, family, work, money, leisure, These are all kinds of things that I run to to tell me that life is worth living. What about you? Take inventory. What what is it that seems better? Money, sex, a certain hobby or relationship? They're usually really good things, right? It's, It's only the best things that can really end up being competition. But you can't do better than Jesus. So then once you know the competition, make the comparison. What is it about those things that you keep running back to? Typically, all of those things fit into one of three categories. They give you one of three things. Does the thing competing with Jesus promise me security, significance, or satisfaction? Security, significance, or satisfaction. For example, money makes me feel secure while my work and my family make me feel significant. And then ask yourself, what does Jesus promise that they offer. You see, Jesus, he, he promises satisfa- satisfaction, doesn't he? When life, abundant life to the fullest, even now. Food, leisure, sex, stuff, they all make the same promises, don't they? That, that you'll have life to the fullest. But, but Jesus says even better. Jesus promises security, better than money, better than the strongest army, better than the best doctors. He holds the universe together with the word of his power and he's already defeated the worst enemy, sin and death. And significance? I mean, if you belong to Jesus, God is your father and according to Hebrews chapter two, Jesus is your brother. Success, family approval, it's nothing in comparison. And then choose the one that's better. And I'm actually going to give us some time to work through some of that right now as we celebrate communion. On the pew when you came in, there was a, a simple card with a simple equation that, that Jesus is greater than blank. I think I have a slide. Yeah, that Jesus is greater than blank. Simple equation. That's the book of Hebrews. If you want a summarize of, of all these 13 chapters of this whole sermon that is the book of Hebrews, it's Jesus is greater than blank. You can put anything in that blank, and the equation is always true. Jesus is always better. And the card is two-sided. It's got the same thing on both sides. So as we prepare to celebrate communion, just take a a moment right now and think through that equation. Maybe if you have a pen or a pencil handy, just fill out on one of those sides. What is it that you would put in that equation? What competes that you say, no, Jesus is greater than this? And for the other side, I just encourage you to, maybe you don't want to show people what's on that one side, so just flip it over and keep it blank and put it in a place somewhere you can just be a visible reminder during the series, maybe in your Bible or on your mirror, on your desk, on the fridge at home, somewhere where you're reminded that you can't do better than Jesus.